0: Back there, strumming her guitar and um, singing and playing something. uh, Did you play the tambourine yet? She ran away. Um, If she hasn't played the tambourine yet, she will. It's really awesome. Um, If you have around you one of these cards, or you don't have one of these around you, uh, there's some on empty seats, maybe around tables, there's some in the back. Um, We have gone ahead and reprinted a bunch of these. with the intention that this could be uh, an object in your home uh, that would be a reminder of the desire that we have for radical welcome um, in this new season. We feel like there's a calling upon us as a church um, to consider um, this idea of hospitality and welcome. I believe that the um, pandemic um, is proving to us the desire of closer to home in a lot of ways. We've talked a little bit about this. Um, And one of them is that we are living with uh, neighbors um, who um, um, have all kinds of wants and wishes and needs and hopes in their lives. And there's something beautiful happens when we can gather some people together and make space for them to be welcoming to our neighbors, literal neighbors, as God is welcoming to us. Um, we this was a sermon series um, um, card that we did a couple years ago, and um, my wife took it home and she put it in a frame, a glass, a pure glass frame um, background, and she stuck it in the middle and she put it just inside our front door, and it's been there for a few years and it is our reminder that we want our home and our space to be a place of welcome, uh, and so we want to encourage you to open up your yards and your tables in your refrigerators, and we want you to make space for your neighbors, neighbors without um, an agenda other than kindness and hospitality and welcome and friendship. And so um, I encourage you to take this home and find space for it on your kitchen table, your fridge, above your door. Um, maybe not outside your front door because people will come in, that'd be awkward, um, but if you could uh, find space for it, that would really be awesome, so. Um, we are going to continue um, in uh, this idea, uh, this new series for the next six weeks that we're calling The Ways of Jesus. Uh, for the last month, we've been unpacking this new, I'm calling it an identity statement. It's got a little mission statement, and it's got a little vision statement in it. Um, it's mostly done. Uh, it's got pathways of development. Uh, but this new identity statement came to us um, Um, sort of at the end of the summer kind of coming off the 21-week study of the book of John where we were not intending to radically change um, our mission statement um, or our vision statement. In fact, we were living in a great place of contentment with it. Um, But we decided to make an adjustment to it along the way because we felt like God was revealing to us and in that revelation to us about what He was calling us to, it was stirring up all of these things and these ideas through the book of John. I and mean, after some prayerful much prayerful consideration and lots of conversation we felt like god was saying the identity of who you are is to name your reality and that is that we are an imperfect people yet in the midst of our imperfection we are beloved by jesus and he calls us his beloved and our desire our our mission our vision Our longing for our imagined tomorrow is to continue to seek after him, to live in him and in his ways. There's something hopeful about this in this season, but if we just left it without any pathways of understanding, then it would just be a statement without um, clarity, without assimilation. And so we unpacked the last month, the pathway of formation and invitation and engagement. If you have not listened to the sermons from, I think it's the second week of September through uh, even last week, so it's like four or five weeks, I'd really, really encourage you um, to, uh, to listen to them, even uh, this week and the next few weeks, to understand um, the rootedness of all of this um, and uh, the passion and compassion that we're hearing from Jesus about what he's calling us to. But in there, it says, and his ways, and and we want to live in him and in his ways. And the desire for that is we can live out of his ways, but but we understand that the source of the power uh, to sustain um, the mission um, has to be in him. We understand that the rootedness in Christ leads us um, to um, our own place of health and wholeness and, 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 and wellness, that we understand that God is calling us to be radically transformed as we engage His world, but our tanks need to be filled with the sustainable water that He provides. Our food needs to be the bread that He provides, and that comes from Him, and it comes from in Him. And so we created this list of 15 uh, uh, ways that we were wrestling with through the book of John, and understandably, there are more. There, there could be 50, 60, 100 ways. I, it, the number is endless in the book of John. 22 weeks of John, 21 weeks of John, looking at the generosity of Jesus, the Word, week after week after week, we saw an endless generosity. But we've talked about then, all right, so who was this generous Messiah and what was it, um, who, who was he and how did he live that out in the world? We just started writing things down from chapter 1 to chapter 21. And this morning I, I want to kind of just focus on those first two, the idea that Jesus abided he, in the Father's love and he surrendered to the Father's will. We read in, in, the, in John 1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was God and the Word was with God and Word, Logos, is, is, is the name for Jesus. He is the Word and it says in the beginning, so before anything was, there was God and Jesus was God and was with God. God. There's something about an abiding, an, uh, what we're calling an in-ness of the Triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, at the beginning. And so, this whole notion of interconnection, of abiding in and with, is, is uh, you know, predates anything that was made and will continue into the forever world. And so, abiding in has been at the core and the, and, and, and the, the center of who Jesus is. And so when Jesus then becomes the incarnation and God took on flesh and became man, as Peterson then says, and moves into the neighborhood, then Jesus becomes with us and in our space. And so as Jesus is going to continue in his ministry, this three-year arc of teaching and healing and announcing and declaring and calling forth people to follow and repent and the cross and the death and the resurrection, all of it is about abiding in. At the beginning when Jesus is being tempted by the devil overlooking Jerusalem and the devil's like, listen, all I got to do is bow to me and I'll give you all of this. No, he drew off the strength of the love of the Father to say no. As he enters into the cross knowing the horrific pain that he is going to suffer on the behalf of us imperfect people, he drew strength from the love of the Father to continue. So abiding is from the beginning. The other one is surrendering to the Father's will. In John chapter 5, Jesus begins to declare, I'm not here for my own ideas. I'm not here for my own work. I'm not here for my own path. I'm here to do the will of the one who sent me. And Jesus' declaration from the beginning, from the beginning, was to submit and surrender to the Father's will. And I think these two things are really, really important to us as we continue in our journey in and with Jesus. Now, I want you to understand, I don't think that our desire for, to unpack the ways of Jesus is merely about some ethical, behavioral change. Now, hear me out. I think it would be really, really good if Christians in this church and around the world would ethically change I think it would be really, really swell if the world knew who we were because of the way that we loved one another. I think that's a really, really cool idea. I think this idea of behaving more like Jesus in the world, not as an act but as a reality, is the transformation of the kingdom on earth. I would love more of that. But this isn't just about a behavioral change. Behavioral change is good, but it's not the end. God doesn't call us to act like something new and fresh. He calls us to live in something that is absolute and forever. He's asking us not to behave in a good way, but to find our life in a resurrected Messiah, a Messiah who dwells in and transforms us, the old to new, the death to life, the flesh, the heart of stone to the heart of flesh. This isn't merely an ethical idea to live in the ways of Jesus. This is to become more like him. C.S. Lewis, I've been reading a little bit um, in this incredible book, Mere Christianity. If you have not read this, um, I'm going to beseech you as pastor of this church that this has to be um, the next thing that you do. Uh, This book will radically, radically change um, the way that you see the world and the way that you can see what it's like to have a life in Christ. Written um, during World War II as uh, a series of radio broadcasts. Um, it is, uh, it's an incredible, incredible thing. But look what he says here when he's talking about, um, towards the end of the book, uh, Lewis is starting to talk about um, living in Jesus, and living in some of these spiritual realms, and understanding things like, uh, he talks about, like morality and marriage and forgiveness and sin and hope and love and faith and all of that. And he starts talking about this idea of becoming like Christ, behaving like Christ in a world that is desperate for righteousness and holiness and goodness and hope. But he says it's easy to think that the church has a lot of different objects, you know, like education or the building or missions or holding services. And all of those things are really, really important. And a lot of us have been told throughout our Christian church life that this is the most important thing. But Lewis stares this false truth in the face and says, no, the church exists for nothing, nothing else but to draw you, us, into Christ, to make us little Christs. If they aren't doing that, then all the cathedrals and clergy and mission and servants, even the Bible itself, are simply a waste of time. The entire purpose of, of this on earth, this kingdom existence, is for us to be more like Christ. Now, let's be careful here. I can't save your sins. I mean, I I could die for you, but I can't save your sins. I can't save you from your sins. I can't can't do a lot of things that the divine gets to do. I can't be at all places at all time. I can't be the Alpha and the Omega. I cannot reign and rule over the universe can't do those things. It's not what it's asking us to do. It's asking us to become more and more like him, the heart of stone becoming the heart of flesh, the death coming alive, the empty, empty, empty cisterns of our emotional and spiritual and physical lives being overflowed with the abundance of the presence of Jesus. This is what we're being called to, and I think it's fitting that we begin in the ways of Jesus in this beginning. What does it mean to abide in the Father's love? And what does it mean to surrender to the Father's will? It's fitting. It's a fitting place to begin because, honestly, it's, it's kind of where Jesus began. But as I've sat and prayed and thought about this over the last two weeks getting ready for this morning, I started to think about, okay, so what does it mean to abide in the Father's love? What does it mean to surrender to his will? What is the teachable moment in all of this? And it's easy to think that this is maybe a little bit just um, theoretical. But as I prayed and felt like God was impressing upon me, I began to see that this is an extraordinarily fitting teaching for us in October of 2021. The state of the union is disconnected and divided. The state of the union is disconnected and divided. I've had so many conversations over the last two years that can be categorized in all sorts of categories. From hardship to joy, from feeling lost to feeling found, to being at the end of the rope, to having a rope untied, and everything in between. But there are common threads of anger in our story. There's common threads of discouragement in our day to day. There are common threads of disillusionment in our day to day. Amen. Our heroes are failing miserably, be it pastors church leaders, influencers, athletes, coaches, politicians. Our people are failing us left and right. And in a world of media and social media, we get to see their failures lived out moment by moment. And there is anger. There's anger in our story. And I love what Kurt said, even in the beginning. There's also a thread that's common that has to do with followers of Jesus who find themselves withdrawn. Withdrawn um, consciously and maybe even subconsciously. That pandemic is presented itself in such a way that we've had a chance to kind of reset our habits. Reset our rhythms. And what was, isn't right now for various reasons. Some are enjoying the simple life. It's easy. If you've got littles and you try to get them to church on a Sunday... Man, it, I mean, it takes a monumental miracle of God. He creates the world in six days. I need that same power to get my kid dressed and ready for church in the morning. And just by the way, I, I don't think he created the world in six days. It's just a metaphor. That's for another sermon. Um, <laughs> I remember in my ordination um, oral comps, the question was, how old is the earth? And I said, Old. And he said, "How old?" And I said, "Really old." And he's like, "How old?" I'm like, "Whatever number you have, just add a bunch of zeros to the end of it." And he said, "Can you prove it?" I was like, "Can you? No, <laughs> I wasn't there. It's uh, just old. That's for another sermon. Uh, hang with me. Don't leave on account of that." Um, but there, there are just there. There are new habits. There's habits of convenience, habits of simplicity. And don't get me wrong, convenience. And simplicity are not moral. Um, uh, these, aren't, these aren't sinful issues. I think God is calling us to simplicity. Ross said it. I think God is calling us to simplicity. But we have created habits in our life in the midst of our disconnect and divide that are separating us from the source that provides for us the strength that we actually need. The source that we actually need is to be in Jesus and allow Jesus to overflow us. But there is a withdrawal. There's a withdrawal. There's the threat of, for now, this is what I need. And for now, this is good. Or at least good enough. I do not believe that your entrance into heaven when you stand before St. Peter is, how many church services did you attend but there's something really, really mysteriously good about what it means for the assembly to gather. I don't think your, your, your forever life, your, the covenantal faith of Christ in your life is dependent on how many Bible studies you're in, how many times you read the scriptures, how much you pray, how right your prayers are, uh, uh, how much money you... It's not dependent on any of that. Yet there is something holy and mysterious about drawing from the deep, deep well of Jesus. And I know in my life, if and when I withdraw, the chasm just becomes bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And And if you're like me, we don't always have the self-control To return, we don't always have the self control to return. And so I think it's fitting for us to begin with seeing the ways of Jesus as abiding in the love of God and surrendering to his will. I think abiding and surrendering fills up the tank, I think it provides rest. I think it helps us trust the story and the storyteller. I think it helps us create new habits and new rhythms that are more like Jesus and less like the divided world. I think it helps us to experience gratitude in new and fresh ways. And I think that we get to live off the overflow of the generosity of God, which creates the overflow in us. I think abiding in and surrendering to is the antidote of our disengagement. Scripture's all over this. Scripture's all over this. It's not just in John. Philippians chapter 2, we're going to read from that real quick. It's one of the most extraordinary pieces of literature ever written in Scripture. Not even from its sort of technical um, Greek perspective that Paul writes with such, such precision. But there is something so holy and profound And the simplicity of this idea, therefore, so therefore means what came before it. And if you read Philippians chapter 1, it is all about the worthiness of Jesus. So therefore, he's saying, if Jesus is worthy, and then he continues, if you have any encouragement, well, that's the word paraclete. It's the name that Jesus gives to the Holy Spirit that's going to abide in us. If you have, he, he borrows that word, comfort, encouragement, but he borrows it after Jesus names his Holy Spirit that lives and dwells in us. He says, if you have any he's building the bridge of abiding. If you have any encouragement from being united, it's the word in. If you have any encouragement from being in Christ, it says in the Greek. The inness, right away, the abiding. He says, if you have any comfort from his love, This word comfort is, it could be paraclete, but it's not. He uses this other word, paramuthos. It's the only time it's used in the New Testament. I think. I could be wrong. If it isn't, it's only like one or two times. But it literally means to tell a story of calm. If you are experiencing the breath of God telling you the story of calm, if you have any common sharing, that's the word "koineia." If you've been around church, that's the integrated fellowship of God and His people. If you have any common sharing in the Spirit, if you have if you have any tenderness or compassion, the word "splanknon." We talked at length last week about compassion then make my joy complete. He's saying, my joy is full. This is an a, imperative command to let the water overflow. He's saying, I'm already full, but make it overflow. Make it overflow. And how do we make joy within us overflow? Well, one, we're rooted in the worthiness of Jesus. We're living off in the in, in, abiding in encouragement within the comfort and love in, the common sharing in, the tenderness, compassion of and in, the overflow comes when we have the same mind and the same love and the same spirit and the same wholeness. Why? Because the Father, Son, and the Spirit had the same mind and the same love and the same spirit and the same wholeness. He's declaring the the. the, the power source that you need for sustainability and love and encouragement and hope in the world is found in Christ, in the abiding in and with. That's why Jesus said, the Father is the gardener and I am the vine and you are the branches and we're all interconnected. And then he says this, don't do anything about, then he, then he juxtaposes this to the division and, uh, and the distraction and the discontent of the world. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Don't do anything out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Sometimes when you read this where it says selfish ambition, in some of your translations it'll say contention or strife. Now this, I know, is the only time that it's used in the New Testament Greek. And so understanding what this word means, you have to go outside of those sources. You start looking at at Plato and Socrates and Aristotle and other philosophical writers that use this word. The word for selfish ambition literally means this. It describes those who are seeking political office by an unfair path or means. It means to manipulate to get a post. It means to cheat to get elected. It means to destroy opponents uh, to get elected or to produce a false self in which people think you're something that you're not. That's how that word is used in Greek, and Paul steals it and says, don't do anything about the promotion of yourself, the lying, the cheating, the destruction, the stepping on your neighbor to get what you want. Don't lie, don't cheat, don't manipulate, don't throw people on the bus, don't call out people groups in this world, and call them hateful words for your own glory. Vain conceit is an empty pride. It's, when, it's when, you're, um, when you believe that you are more important than the person next to you. Vain conceit is when you are convinced that you and your pride and your ego is the very thing that the world needs to be safe and to be good and to be helpful and hopeful. Yet Jesus says, you want to be great, you're going to be small. You want to be first, you're going to be last. You want to be up, then you got to go down you want to serve, then you're going to die. It's the extraordinary upside-downness of the gospel because in a world of disconnect and defeat and discouragement and disillusionment and cheating and manipulation, Jesus is saying, no, 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 the gospel is wholly other. You want to find your life, you're going to lose it. You want more, you got to become less. You want to take, you got to give. And we don't do it by manipulation or cheating or destruction We do it out of humility. We do it out of humility. So he says, rather, don't do what the world does. And humility, here's your response. The world behaves this way? He says, no, no, no. Treat others better than yourself. That's it. Don't look down on the interests of others, but let you know that the interests of others is really, really important and maybe even more important than your own interests. Because this is all comes out of abiding in, produces this desire, produces this path, produces this divine behavior that we can embrace and live out in our broken world. It is for the goodness of the advancement of the kingdom, and it's for the goodness of the destruction and despair of my own soul. Please don't hear me that I am somehow waking up every day and crushing this. This is hard. This is hard. And I'm failing at this all the time. And when I'm really failing, it's because my tank is empty. Where, oh, where will I look for my help? Where, oh, where will I look for my help? So if we're abiding in, and then he starts unpacking this through a song. Let's look at the next verses. This might be the oldest Christian hymn in the Christian church. Paul didn't write this originally, but he adapted it. And theologians believe that it was a song being sung in house churches that Paul adapts for the church and for the scriptures. Therefore, in your relationships with one another, <laughs> see how... But it's so interesting. It's for the relationships here. It's for the relationships here. See, when this is functioning and flowing and moving, then this will function and flow and move. If we're abiding in, then in your relationships with other, have the same mindset that's in Christ. Who, being in the very nature of God, because he is God, didn't consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Simply saying, he didn't abuse his divinity when he was on earth. Instead, he surrendered. And rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a servant. I think the Greek word is doulos. He took on somebody that would serve. Being in the maid of human likeness, divinity, humanity, and being found in the appearance of a man, he humbled himself. You see, if you want to know what the, the greatest way of Jesus it, it might be humility. Because it, 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 humility creates and humi- humility makes and humility reaches out and it enters into a covenant with. Humility shows up in the form of a birthed child to live amongst us. Humility calls us humility walks to the cross, humility willingly climbs upon the death machine, or humility dies and trusts the Father to raise. And his humility, for Jesus to live out the way of humility, the end of that humble path was the death on the cross. Even death on the cross continue. Therefore, and why is therefore there? Because the story doesn't end in death. The story doesn't end in perpetual misery. The story doesn't end in perpetual abandonment. The story doesn't end in disillusionment or disconnect or, 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 or anger or hatred. Or however anybody was experiencing, the, the next chapter of the story is resurrection. Because out of death comes life. And so God exalted him, raised him up, to the highest place, from the lowest place to the highest place. And gave him a name that is greater than every other name on earth and in heaven. A name to which everyone will bow in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. And every tongue will acknowledge that this Jesus is Christ and Lord for the purpose of the glory of the Father. Surrendering to the will of the Father is always about glory to the Father, not about glory to self. We don't surrender to God for us to be made big. We surrender to God in order for God to be glorified. The story doesn't end in misery and disconnect, it ends in new life, it ends in resurrection, it ends in hope, it ends in salvation. I think this is really fitting. And I think Jesus is asking us to trust the story and the storyteller and to abide in him and abide in his grace and love and mercy and kindness and power and hope to fill us up in order to have right and honest, healthy relationships with each other and with our neighbors and with our city and with our world. We accept the invitation into Christ and then we humble ourselves and we surrender. I think this is good for us. I don't think this is just good for us here in church. I think it's good for, for all aspects of our life. I believe abiding and surrendering have a lot to do with the covenant. We don't have a lot of time here, so I'm going to kind of give you some of the cliff notes. Covenant is a binding relationship between two parties. And in Genesis 17 and Genesis 15, God enters into a covenant with Abraham. Abraham. I will be your God. You will be my people. We're gonna, let's make a covenant. That means we have to stand on both sides of the covenant. We're going to make a little circle. We're going to cut an animal. We're going to shed blood. We're going to put it on our hands. It's like spit, you know, and you, and you shake on it, and that's it. It's binding. And if anybody, either party, breaks the covenant, breaks the agreement, the binding contract, well, then death upon them. And so God calls Abraham to enter in a covenant, and he sets up the covenantal circle, and he stands there, and he brings his offering. But while he's there, God kind of lowers him and makes him rest and not really be able to move. And in his, what he sees is smoke and fire stand on both sides of the covenant and they become the two parties that hold the covenant together. And we know theologically that in that beautiful picture, there's God standing on both sides of the covenant because he knew we couldn't hold up our end of the deal. And he enters into a covenant that he can't break. It is impossible to his nature to break. And so where does the covenant play out? Well, the covenant plays out in my personal relationship with Jesus, it plays out in my relationship as the church, member of the church. That's covenantal. But the covenant also takes place in our marriages and in our parenting. The covenant takes place, it's for you and your children. And when we perform weddings, we don't perform services and ceremonies, we perform a covenantal service. And which we acknowledge that God is entering into, beautifully and uniquely, the relationship between uh, the, the two getting married, and stands in it and with them. Because I'll tell you this: if I am not abiding in Jesus in my marriage, then Anne is not going to get my best. If not I'm not abiding in Jesus and living off the generosity of mercy, then my mercy effort to Anne is going to be unsustainable. If I'm not living off the grace of my relationship with Jesus, then my outpouring of grace on Anne is going to be thin and unsustainable. And if there is anybody in this world that needs mercy and grace, it's Anne. Because she is married to me, and that is a difficult proposition. But if I'm not living off that abiding, how can I sustain? How can I sustain? How about with my children? If I'm not abiding in Jesus and living off the protection and care and delight, how can I trust that my kids are going to be okay? I I tried last night staying up for my son, Elliot. He's somewhere in the room. He went to a concert. Some country artist named Pitbull. I don't know who it is. So um, we can pray for his soul. I don't know what that's about. But he doesn't live at home anymore. He lives up in Boone. But he was home for the weekend. And he went. And I tried to stay up for him last night because I'd go back into parent mode. But I zonked out and fell asleep. This morning, Ann said, did Elliot come home? And I was like, oh. It was your turn to watch him. I don't know. I blamed it on her. But I, I, if I'm not abiding in, how, how can I? How can I have confidence in God's caring for my kids? If I'm not abiding in and surrendering to, when, when my child screws up and I want to react, what does it look like to respond to my child the way that God has responded to me? See, I don't think these things are esoteric behavioral ideas. Abide in, surrender to. No, these are real-life, everyday things that matter. When we abide in, we draw strength from, and it changes the relationships. When we surrender to, when we go low and we come humble, it changes the relationships with. And I'll tell you what, if I could bring two ethics into this world, two behavioral changes that I would love to see our church, I can't control anybody, I barely can, I can't control anybody, but the desire I have for this church, even over all of them is this, wouldn't it be amazing if this church's reputation is that it was sincere in its love and kindness and mercy to others, and it was sincere in its humility to our city? (laughs) I think love and humility can change the world because 2,000 years ago it did. Love and humility can change the world for God's glory and not our own, for the advancement of his kingdom and not my ego. May everything that we do in the ways of Jesus be about Christ and may he be the source of all of our power as we go forward. Let's pray. And so, Lord, I thank you from the bottom of my heart for the generosity that you took on flesh and moved into my neighborhood and that you surrendered yourself to the Father's will and became humble, humble even to the point of death on a cross. Thank you for the forgiveness of my sins, for the sins of my brothers and sisters, For the sins of the world. I thank you that you didn't abandon us, but you sent your Holy Spirit, the Paraclete Comforter, to live in us, to keep us in that abiding relationship. May we feast off your love, your mercy, your kindness. And may we surrender our lives. May we surrender our lives is an act of worship because you are worthy of our lives. May we draw off the strength of the water that you fill in our tanks. May we eat the bread that you provide every day. And in the name of humility and hope and kindness, may we honor our neighbors, our friends, our coworkers, our family, our spouses, our children. May we find these ways, the sustained ways. And may we react and respond like Paul. Please, please, for my benefit, make my joy overflow. And may that overflowing and abundance be an honorable act of worship for you, Lord. Be a generous gift to my neighbors. It's in Christ's name we pray.